one of the surprising challenges in phenotype to genotype uh, research is that you cannot easily put in the same place, in the same room, in the same institution, phenotypes and genotypes of people at scale. This is Tectonics, the podcast focused on the people and passion at the intersection of technology and health. In the course of his fascinating career, physician scientist Amalio Talenti has had the opportunity to work with two prominent and immiscable centers of excellence in genomics, Eric Lander's Broad Institute and Craig Bentner's HLI. On today's show, we'll learn what he's taken away from these two exceptional and distinct experiences. Hopefully, we'll also learn what immiscible means. This is Tectonics. I'm Lisa Sunan. And I'm David Shaywitz. And in addition to teaching Lisa vocabulary, today's episode is brought to you by DNA Nexus, the secure and compliant cloud platform that enables enterprise users to analyze, collaborate around, and integrate massive amounts of genetic and other health data. So, Lisa? Yes. Um, I see if you took chemistry, you'd know about immiscible. Yeah, well, um, I didn't. Yeah. <laughs> I'm a political scientist. All right, all right, all right. So um, I wanted to start today's show by highlighting what I thought was really cool um, uh, recent news, a um, startup um, high, high profile, or should be high profile, as I was whining about on Twitter. <laughs> no, shocking. Um, but started by one of our recent guests, Daphne Kohler. Did you see yes, that? Yes, I saw that. That was very exciting. I understand you actually introduced her to her first source of funding. Yeah, yeah. Well, it, I, I'm such a fan of Daphne, and this is a startup yeah. that, you know, she's essentially the arguably the world, as we discovered on our show, really one of the world's ML experts. Yep. And, um, you know, the whole thesis is, you know, people obviously, want, we, we've, we've met all these guests, people want to use it in the con, use, you know, ML to make healthcare better, to make genetics, to make health uh, better. And, you know, one of the real limitations that people have is the quality of the data set. So where she, her real goal, it seems from what I've read on the, on, on the blog that they put up, they're really, they're doing an ultra soft launch, it looks like, um, is to basically create the robust data sets that they believe them, that ML needs to learn on. Yeah. So, well, um, nobody better qualified than her, I imagine. Absolutely. So I'm uh, really excited to see how uh, this works out. And speaking of delighted, we are delighted to welcome the wonderful Amalio Talenti to the show today. Thank you so much for joining us, Amalio. Good morning, David. Good morning, Lisa. Good morning. I understand you're out taking your child around to see colleges. Yes, um, and you see Santa Barbara today. Ah, nice one. Yeah, I've seen that. I remember taking my daughter there and thinking, you got to be an idiot not to go here once having seen it. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so we're going to mix things up a little bit today. Usually we sort of go chronologically, but today I want to talk about one of your most recent roles and then backfill a bit for context. So let's kind of, you know, just a little warning, we're just going to jump right in. So tell us about how you got involved with Craig Ventner and um, HLI, because uh, from what I remember, it seemed like a, a very, very rapid courtship. Yes, uh, I was... I was in the U.S. and I was introduced by a common friend of, of ours uh, to Craig Venter. And that was a speed, a speed dating. I met him on a Monday. <laughs> and on Wednesday, I got an email from him saying just a very convincing phrase. He said, I need you ASAP. And that crystallized into a contract within one week. Wow. And that contract made me move my whole family from Switzerland 
to what it was then the early days of his new company, Human Longevity. Wow. Wow. So what, what did he propose that you would do for him? What was your understanding? What, what prompted you, kidding aside, to, um, to drop everything that you were doing and join, his, and join and become part of his vision? And what year was this? That was in 2014, in spring. So it's, it's four years to the date. Um, it's funny. I can tell you what made him excited about me, which is the weirdest thing that you can imagine. At that time, I had just finished a pet project, a hobby, where with a colleague of mine I bought from Twitter company. I bought uh, the stream of tweets on toxicity of HIV drugs. And I told him that you could buy Twitter streams for, I, I think it was $20,000 $20, for many millions of tweets all with the keywords that we were looking for. And we reconstructed from those tweets, we reconstructed the toxicity of the main HIV drugs uh, from, from the beginning to an end. So I, I, told, I told him that story and he could not believe it. And I guess that's why he hired me. I, I had no idea Twitter actually had a business model. What do you know? <laughs> <laughs> but what sounds interesting to me, I mean, this sounds sort of like an updated version of like Google flu trends where, you know, they're trying to do search results to identify early flu. And here, what it sounds like is you're trying to, you, you identified a way to use Twitter searches um, or, or Twitter mentions to identify potential con, um, uh, AEs with drugs. Exactly. So he was, he thought that was um, wicked cool? Yep. And I guess that's what, what landed me the job. Ha! Huh. Because huh. I thought like you were, you had this crazy title you told me, like head of functional biology, and you thought it was a great title, yep. but you had no idea what it meant. And then <laughs> you were a geneticist by training. But you seduced him with Twitter? Well, it worked for me and Lisa, so that's good. <laughs> uh, yes, see, see, this is, that's why you never know how things are going to end. Why did he think that was intriguing, and how did he see it being part of his vision? What was his vision? Well, I, I, I think his, his early vision for human longevity was uh, something that today is very familiar. It, it is if you bring enough high-quality quantitative data, uh, you will be able to deploy machine learning. And we just heard it today from Daphne Kohler, a new adventure. So actually it was basically the same thing, mostly around genomics, but also around imaging. Uh, and that was the foundation of the company, sufficient data to create machine learning opportunities. But wasn't the, the vision, the bigger vision to, you know, basically maximize, extend life for people and, and, and people largely of means because it's a very expensive program. Yeah, that was a subsidiary thing. It's, uh, uh, Craig Venter made a, an epidemiologically, epidemiological concept that makes sense. He said that between age of 55, 60 until age 75, 30% of men will die and 25% of women. Uh, so it means, <laughs> it means that, uh, that targeting, targeting that uh, early failures, failure here meaning not being able to make it to 80, which is our longevity currently, 
this was the best way to inter, in, intervene in aging. It just push that those 30% of people uh, up the bump uh, of dying uh, 10 to 15 years too early. That was the concept. Now, the, the people die from very clear known things, cancer, metabolic disorders, cardiovascular. And the principle there is that the cancer, the, the heart, coronary artery disease, etc., is already there. It's just there to be discovered. It's not something that just comes overnight. The cancer is sitting there for years in our body growing. The coronary artery disease calcification and, uh, and atherosclerotic plaque is there. So he, Craig Venter, he said, you know, the disease is there. All we have to do is discover it by technology. But isn't the truth really that knowing you have disease is nice and all, but it's behavior change that makes the, the outcome different. And, and thus, you know, the medical side of it is, is only a small part, really. It's what do you do to get somebody to change their behavior and act that changes the, the course of that disease, it's particularly cardiovascular, metabolic? Yes, certainly. I think you can always argue uh, well, how much of it will be uh, correctable, uh, how much of it is behavior, how much of it is actually epidemiological. I mean, you may well have the cancer, but you may, may not die of that. You may die of a, a secondary other uh, problem. Uh, but you cannot contradict that the statement is conceptually correct. Now the question is whether technologies, by discovering things, are truly discovering uh, uh, something that needs to be intervened on. Yeah, I can imagine it. And I want to get to this in a second about the challenges between, you know, the, you know, essentially, um, and something, this is something actually another one of our guests, uh, Zach Cohen, has written about a lot, like sort of the incidental ome and, and all that, what about all sort of findings that are, and that's this thing that's absolutely plagued folks, uh, uh, you know, trying to do early detection uh, uh, and it's something that, uh, uh, um, people have written about, but taking it back half a step just to walk us through sequentially. So the ambition is to collect all, you know, imaging data, genetic data, you know, genophino data, you know, I'm fascinated by the specific concept, integrate it and come away with insight. Um, where, and then you've described, you said that um, early on in the, in the efforts, um, they were confronted by reality, I think was your phrase. Could you tell us what you mean by that and then how they um, adjusted? Well, I, I think one of the surprising challenges in phenotype to genotype uh, research is that you cannot easily put in the same place, in the same room, in the same institution, phenotypes and genotypes of people at scale. And that is because um, already institutions have difficulties uh, transferring uh, genomic data because of uh, privacy concerns, and even worse, uh, that joined to actual phenotypic or any data that may reveal too much about an individual. Uh, so the, I think the, the surprise was to recognize that no matter how many machines you have, no matter how much technology or money you have, you can actually you cannot actually get the data uh, to do 
the, the analysis. You couldn't get population level data. Is that sort of the issue? You cannot get po population data level easily, except UK genomes that just went and, and did it. So even though there's been tons of discussion about the ethics of it, the consent of it, the security, the privacy, the risks to the participants, uh, here we have somebody as as uh, pragmatic as the British just just did it, did it, open it, and it's been a, a tremendous resource of research in the last 12 months, uh, which basically challenging the whole planet uh, concerns about uh, creating such a phenotype genotype. Um, a gigantic database, right? Because like people, like people, there's so much genetics, genetics concern. People are sort of like, oh, it's going to be end times. And then um, people like Robert Green, who's done the research, in many cases, it says that it hasn't. And haven't there been also other countries in addition to UK Biobank, um, like Estonia and Finland? Estonia, Estonia has created it, but being less open to outside research as compared to Iceland too, UK. Right? I mean, there's been academic research. The same thing with uh, uh, Decode and Iceland. Um, they have a lot of data, but it's not been at the level of openness that uh, UK has offered. And what about Finland? Because I hear that they keep working. I mean, Broad keeps highlighting the relationship with, with, with Finland. I imagine if the Broad is involved, Presumably, it's pretty open, or is that not accurate? I I don't think it has the same level of access. It doesn't mean that you cannot enter collaborations, uh, but you will, if you scout the literature, you'll see that now there is a UK biobank uh, paper every week uh, of gigantic sizes, but you will not see the same thing with all with other countries. Uh, at one moment, I look at ethics consent and, and access consent to many places, and even though on publication looks pretty open, in reality, it is uh, difficult. I, I wonder, what do you think, uh, stepping away from this, the medical side for just a moment, do you think that the efforts in the U.S. to create these massive data banks of genomic information are going to be changed by, you know, what we just saw in the news about uh, the Golden State Killer, the you know, with the genetic findings by the police that led him to this to this criminal. And you see all this stuff in the news now about, you know, wait, if I knew people could find, you know, my, my child who may have committed a crime, uh, I might not want my genome out there, things like that. Do you think there's going to be a change or make it worse or harder to get these genetic databases together? I mean, it depends. I mean, there's many people and many societies <laughs> that accept a loss of privacy uh, for the good of security. And let's talk about video cameras and, and surveillance in public places. Uh, so for me, it's very unpredictable. Many people would say, well, what's the deal? I mean, you are not putting in jail the uncle and the niece and the sister of the criminal. Uh, so you are not uh, attempting any attack on the wider society. All you are doing is capturing a criminal. Um, so it depends how people take it, uh, whether they take it as a menace or as a as a perfectly functional uh, system to to identify. Uh, actually, I do have another anecdote of this because a few years ago we did publish the risk for tier people, for tier persons 
of exposing your genome together with other data. And this was uh, when it, this was becoming a, a bit of fashion. So we pull out people who voluntarily place their genome and phenotype in the public domain. We map them to their social media, to their Twitter accounts, to their Facebook accounts, etc. everything we could access. And we actually mapped uh, many, many relatives, and we could calculate the risk of diseases to the relatives just by using the normal Mendelian genetics. We can say, well, I know that this person exposed his genome. It has a certain risk to, for example, Alzheimer. Therefore, I can, I can calculate the enrichment for the relatives that I pulled out from their accounts, from the social media accounts. So this is not new. I mean, that we can spread information from the people who, that expose uh, their, uh, their data to the public, to their families. We can, I mean, uh, theoretically an insurance company could do this type of things where as long as I know your risks, I can estimate how much it increases the risk of your relatives. That's a fraught with uh, interesting problems there. So we want to get we want to sort of go back a little bit, but before we do that, I just want to try to kind of put a little bow around your your HLA experience because it seems like after you initially had trouble getting all those folks, you try to recruit some in, like you're saying with these sort of like executive physicals, and a lot of it was motivated also by this. You know, I, it really does sound like an underlying sense of determinism, a sense that by looking at the at the genetics in particular, you're really able to determine aspect features of people. And I know that two things that you focused on, you can sort of comment on either one, was one, you really very deeply believed in use of sort of the entire genome versus just the coding part, whole genome versus whole exome. And in your thought that even if people wanted to use just a fraction of it, using just the coding part isn't really the most efficient. People could use a little bit of a different part that was some coding, some non-coding, and get a lot more information. And then the other thing that you guys figured out was that if you... Um, uh, there were a lot of aspects about people that you were able to predict, although this led to a mis misunderstanding, as I understand it, or a controversy, and this sort of famous paper about predicting face, which led to sort of this whole Twitter brouhaha. Um, just in like, a, I know you can't really characterize in a minute, but if you just take one of those aspects and say, what was sort of your takeaway from either the genetics or the, um, the face experience? So I think people will get excited listening about the, all the rumblings around predicting people's faces. Um, I think uh, you can predict traits, uh, which is different to saying we can predict faces. We can predict traits, and, and even as simple as the fact that you already know from the DNA, the age, the ancestry of a person, and with that you can reconstruct a morphological a basis of uh, the physical characteristics of, of a person. Now, you can predict hair color, eye color, you can predict skin color, you can predict height to a certain degree, you can predict BMI, and you can predict uh, some features of bone structure in the face, many of which are also linked to ancestry. You can uh, predict the, the, the width of the nose, you can predict many things. So when you apply, as we did, um, good machine learning models, each one of those small components, predicting a bit of the eye, predicting a bit of the hair, predicting of the, of the height, when all of that 
comes together, you get what it is the basis of machine learning. The machine learning improves by percent points. People think that things go from zero to one. No, no, things go slowly and creep up uh, all the way to uh, perfection in prediction. That's why uh, Google Translate, that's why voice prediction, that's why speech uh, recognition improved dramatically in the last few years. Not because we went from 20% to 90%, but because we went from 75% to 84%. And that be became a, an incredible improvement. So what people did not get from the work of human longevity on, on anthropomorphic prediction is that by keeping adding individually poor predictors, you end with an improved prediction that goes far and beyond what was possible by just looking at ancestry and sex. Now, uh, that's the way it's written. That's why the paper got written. It was not the way it was either publicized or picked up by the news or the Twitter where they focus on faith. So it sounds like the, the broader point was that is you're able to, even though any one of the predictors about any one feature isn't necessarily definitive, progressively by combining it all, you're able to get incrementally better. So we want to, um, great. Um, I'm going to let Lisa now take it, because we, we want to go back, we want to go in, in the uh, way back uh, machine and sort of go back to your beginning. <laughs> go back to your beginning. So you were born in Spain uh, uh, with a family of many generations of doctors. Um, and I understand that your father, who was a professor of medicine, uh, who trained there in Spain and then left for the U.S., uh, was pretty influential on your development. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes. I have a, yeah, a, a grandfather Amalio, a father Amalio, and everybody's a doctor. And the moment arrived, uh, there was no way out. and was not no escape so of this fate. <laughs> <laughs> no idea what you're talking the predictive about. Predictive analytics were so, very clear here. <laughs> So my, well, what would that my feel father, like? I uh, spent uh, one remarkable year at Mayo Clinic, and he thought that that would be the place. I, I'm sure he was attracted by the fact that uh, Rochester uh, will calm and tranquilize even the most agitated uh, uh, juvenile spirits like mine. So he sent me to Rochester to cool off, and I was in Rochester, Minnesota, for, for, for seven years. Because <laughs> you did the same thing. So you did your pre... So similar to your dad, you did your... What you're talking about, as I understand it, is you did your pre-medical stuff um, in Spain, and then you um, basically went to... You uh, went to Olmsted County, um, Mayo Clinic, where you... Um, yeah, yeah, famous, um, legendary. And you um, um, first... Um, took a year there sort of as a fellowship, and then you, or, or pre-doc, or whatever you call it, year, and then you did your internal medicine and infectious uh, diseases training there, um, got, um, got, got all learned up, and then you um, went back to Switzerland for what, what you've described as some of the most pivotal work of your life, um, with um, really a discovery that's still used today. Could you, could you describe your discovery of the multidrug resistance genes associated with uh, TB, so, super briefly, because we also have to get to your broad stuff. Yeah. Uh, I, there was a, a, a unusual situation where um, there was the rumblings of 
a multi-drug-resistant tuberculosis spreading through New York. And you know, when things happen in New York, uh, that somehow brings attention. A multi-drug-resistant tuberculosis was... I blame the globalists, but yeah. (laughs) It was was well-known and was always there, but it was only when it really spread through New York, through the HIV communities, that became a very concerned concerning public health aspect. And by chance, I was looking at the properties of accelerating tuberculosis diagnosis because the tuberculosis diagnosis was extremely slow, was weeks waiting for a positive culture. And I said, oh, I'm going to do that. So I I analyzed and then by chance, very rapidly, I identified uh, in sequence the molecular mechanisms for three of the six main drugs for tuberculosis, which today I realized that that was an accomplishment. But in those days, I thought it was just, um, just business as usual. I was surprised that people treated me like I was doing great job uh, when I thought that it was normal. And and that's, that's today's probably my legacy is that uh, when you get uh, diagnosed today with tuberculosis in the world, they will do a test um, that is based on, on, on that early uh, early days of my career. So I'm, 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 I'm very happy about that. Is it, how does that feel? I mean, that you, you made such a contribution to medicine. Is that something you're really proud of? Do you think about it? Do you talk about it? No, I, but it's true that it makes me realize that, it, that you, you have to do at least one thing right once. <laughs> and, and, and it's impressive. It's impressive how, 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 how much you get out of it of saying, you know, I've done it. I, I, I've been, I've been, let's say, I've been successful once and I had my 15 minutes of, of, uh, of, of uh, fame once. And, and it's, it's great. It's a great feeling. Uh, so ultimately, I assume everything is just prelude for your, so you, you did that. You spent, um, you went to Einstein back in New York for a bit on TB, went back to Switzerland to take care of HIV patients um, with sort of switching your focus from, from the bacteria or from the pathogen to the host. Um, and then ultimately you were, and then I got you interested in long-term non-progressors with HIV and the genetics. And then you wound up at, um, at the Broad. And I'm really interested in both what you did at the Broad, but even more how you now in retrospect contrast your experience at the Broad Maybe you could almost wrap up with this, with what you learned at the Broad, how that contrasted, because they really, the Broad and the, and the HLI folks, there's not, doesn't seem to be a lot of love lost between them, but you seem to have gotten, you, you described your experience at the Broad Institute as one of the best years of your life. You loved it. And, but you also really liked your experience at HLI. So I'm just sort of wondering, what was the Broad like, and how do you, what did you take away from the similarities and differences between the Broad and approaches of people like um, Lisa's correct and the Venter? So there's something that fascinated me from the broad, and there was the glass door. And this is a kind of a, a concept where there was a door separating laboratories from where the analytic people were doing the numbers and analyzing genomes. At one side of the door, there was incredible precise laboratories, and I remember one of them was using then the Toyota system where everything is labeled on the desks. That means there's a place that says pipette and there's a place that says computer. 
in a place that says buffer. And, and, that, and that's what makes a place incredibly proficient and swift and quality controlled. And then you cross the glass door and there were empty boxes of pizza and there was a, a young people sleeping on the sofas and there were the, wall, the, the walls were scraped all over uh, with formulas and, and it was absolute chaos and you never knew who on hell was, was working and on what. And I, for me, that was an, an amazing eye-opening that you need a, a freedom for, for, for innovation and you need a strict a Cartesian structured environment for production. So that was my great lesson at Broad. If you get both aspects um, uh, organized, you may have success. You know, innovation has different rules from production. So, how, but how do you make those two cultures collaborate to translate something into reality? Because that is that cultural that's, thing that's is why, really tough, right? That's why there's a door. That's a door. Keep them separated. Don't let them contaminate each other. <laughs> yeah, but if you never, nothing ever goes through the door, nothing. No, ever but progresses. I know that you're kidding, and the whole point is that the traffic through the door. But no, really, talk. About, I'm really interested in your response to Lisa's question. I've written about the topic about the immiscible cultures, but I'm curious as, as to a, a approach that seems to be solved. How do they the break the glass door? <laughs> so one part is supposed to produce perfect data. You can call it perfect product. You can call it call it wherever. And the other one has to do the magic on that new production. Uh, but you cannot produce crappy data and you cannot have a, a rigid uh, innovation re research. Uh, so, it, it, which it means that you need rigidity, but you have to put it on the, on the correct site and you need innovation, but you have to put it on, on top of the correct people. So do you have to do like desensitization? desensitivity training for the two different groups? Do you have to let them, you know, mingle together over actual pizza once in a while to respect each other's, you know, ability to work despite their different focus, you know, ways of doing it? Yeah, you may not even need to have too much of contact between the groups to, to tell you the truth. I mean, everybody lives in their own environment. You just have to, to be uh, aware of, of what is the, 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 the expectation from each group. So, so Amalio, if I'm hearing you right, what it, another way of phrasing what I think you're saying is that it makes a lot of sense to tailorize the data generation experience, but you definitely don't want to tailorize the innovation, uh, yes, the exactly. innovation initiative. No, no. When you come with that experience and then you reflect on companies, uh, human longevity or others, you will get a flavor of that. If if you contaminate the execution of a company with crazy innovators, uh, you may put in peril the productivity of the company. Uh, and vice versa, if you make a company that is so structured uh, that uh, makes innovation almost impossible, you will not be the next big, big thing. Uh, so the lesson of, the, of, of Broad, I kept it with me. And my experience now in industry shows that that model matters, at least in biotechnology, at least in these innovating sciences. You cannot uh, break somehow those rules of execution and innovation and the different rules. And how are you carrying that through now at the Scripps Institute? How, what is your role there and how do you uh, bring this, this thinking to life? 
Eclipse is a, it's, it's pretty new to me. Uh, I'm trying to uh, learn now the possibilities. I have a mixed appointment. One part of my appointment is a normal professor appointment where I'm supposed to to do research on whatever I want and getting my own funding. And the other one is to uh, improve, support, develop uh, data sciences uh, for the institution. And that probably, if I were to achieve something there, could probably be my best contribution to the institution because uh, no, uh, Ex, no institution like scripts that are very exciting with tremendous chemistry, immunology, etc., is immune to the problematic of data generation. We can generate so much today, and there is a bottleneck in usage. So basically, we go back to the same principle. Somebody will produce the data, and somebody needs the innovation in the organization to execute on it. And scripts, like most pharmas, to be honest, are extremely worried that there is no system, there is no training, and there's no personnel in place to uh, soak uh, the data and the possibilities associated with those data across uh, institutional um, systems. So if I walked into your office, which side of the glass door are you on? Uh, unfortunately for me, I tend to be on the side of the innovation, uh, which is not very good uh, if you are on executive executive positions. <laughs> uh, That's depressing. But, uh, you know, there's so much you can do with yourself. I mean, you cannot split yourself with a glass door through your middle half. Um, but I try, I try. Oh, that's fantastic. Amalia, it is always lovely speaking with you and inspiring and uh, just just fantastic. I'm so grateful that you've spent um, a little bit of time with us this morning. Um, and we're both wishing the best of luck in what you're doing now and whatever you'll do in the future. Such a pleasure to talk to you, Amalia. Thanks, Lisa. Thanks, David. All right. Well, that was uh, uh, Amalia Talenti, who is the um, who is now a professor at the Scripps Institute uh, in La Jolla, previously chief scientific officer, I believe, of um, uh, HLI. Wow, I, I loved that glass door conversation in particular. We uh, you heard about the glass ceiling, but the glass door was really fascinating, and the the sort of the the question as to whether you should keep that door open or closed, you know, between the chaos of innovation and the precision of science. Well, I think it, I, I, I might phrase it differently and say not so much the precision of science, but I think that what we've seen even a lot on our show is that in order to make good use of the data, it really helps to have high quality data. I mean, we, we heard right, Toby sure, argue the other thing that, that just just add, let's just put a ton of stuff, just put a ton of stuff in a vat and stir it, and there's some stuff you can get out. But it's interesting how even in all this big data era, we're seeing a little bit of a, of a, of, of a movement, I think, or a recognition of what Bill Crowley has always talked about at Mass General, sort of, the, sort of this expert in clinical research that has always emphasized the incredible importance of ultra high quality data, and that being incredibly important. And that's what we've really seen with Flatiron, with Amy. Yeah. That's what we've seen with, with Daphne's sure. company. And that's the point that he was making here, that before you can sort of start doing all this fancy footwork on the data, you have to generate the data in an ultra-robust... You're looking so skeptical. I'm so skeptical because here's what I really believe in the end. You can have all the data you want. We have plenty of data now. 
people don't change a lot. So when you you can tell somebody they're going to you know look this way and have cardiovascular disease and all that, but getting them to actually do something about it is so hard. And I think the science conversation often leaves that piece out. Okay, I agree with you. I would say they're both true. I would say, but true, true. I would say that it's necessary, but not sufficient Fair in enough. terms of the, uh, you know, and even figuring out, and I would say even for some of the behavior change, maybe as we have more precise measurements or understandings, maybe we'll be able to gain some subtle insights into how to inflect that. Yeah. Although I really did like that Tom Getz article about yeah, how we can't yeah. stand any more badges. I we'll, know. We'll try to have a link to that. Please join us next time when our guest will be Matthew Stout, CEO of Applied VR. Please remember to rate us on iTunes and help other people discover the show. You can follow David's writing at Forbes. And you can follow Lisa Sunin at VentureValkyrie.com. We're grateful to our sponsor, DNA Nexus, the secure and compliant cloud platform that enables enterprise users to analyze, collaborate around, and integrate massive amounts of genetic and other health data. Tectonics is produced by Connected Social Media and recorded in Tectonic Studio B in Mill Valley, California. Hasta la próxima. Adios.